Welcome to the Grip Strip Podcast, Episode 5. My name is Philip Matthew. I'm here with my co-host, Josh Hafine, and we have a special guest, at least for the first portion of this show. Uh, we are going to deep dive into the IndyCar series uh, tonight on the Grip Strip Podcast, and uh, I've invited a guy who's a man of many talents. Uh, he's an owner, he's a writer, he's a sim racing expert. Uh, he got screwed at uh, his uh, sim racing Indy 500. Uh, I saw it and I was actually getting fired up like it was like Ryan Hunter Ray. I look like the Becky Hunter Ray uh, in when ABC was showing the cameras and stuff because I was like, oh man, we're going to have this great article to write on the website. Tanner's going to win. And then he got um, Santino Ferrucci on the front straightaway at the end and uh, lost, unfortunately. But... Uh, Welcome the owner of openwheels.com, a man who has a very beautiful, significant other. His name is Tanner Watkins. Welcome, man. Uh, and uh, thank you for your time tonight here on uh, the Grip Strip Podcast. No, thank you guys for having me. It's uh, a pleasure to uh, get the chance to talk uh, not only some sim racing, but some real racing with, uh, of course, IndyCar firing back up this week. Uh, we've been thankful to have some NASCAR on the TV as well uh, in the past couple weeks. So happy to just be uh, talking about racing again. Yeah, and I mean, with all the stuff that's going on right now in society, and I mean, not just COVID-19, but the issues that have uh, recently come up with uh, deaths and police brutality and stuff, this racing being back, fortunately, is uh, helping in some ways for some people. So hopefully you're listening to us and it provides you a little bit of joy for a little bit of time. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about is the, uh, the changeover uh, with IndyCar. It, forever it's been Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the George Holman George family running this circuit. And now... Uh, Roger Penske, the guy who literally owned Indianapolis Motor Speedway, now owns Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar Series. So um, I'll throw to you, t you, Tanner, to start, and then Josh, and then I'll I'll kick back on the back end there. Thoughts on what uh, the captain brings and what he has brought through these first few months of his tenure as the man in charge of IndyCar racing. Yeah, I think first, first and foremost, what Roger does is he brings stability uh, to IndyCar. Of course, I'm sure uh, he would have rather entered the sport um, and, and being the steward of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the series as a whole in much better conditions than what we're experiencing now. But at the same time, I think we're all fortunate uh, as fans of not only IndyCar, but motorsport as a whole, that Roger's the one at the helm right now. Um, I think it was mentioned back in November when this announcement was first made, the Holman George family almost felt like they had given all that they could uh, to this point to IndyCar racing and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and their resources, you know, pretty much couldn't let them go any higher than where they were. So when you look at it at that aspect, obviously Roger Penske has 
financial assets and and uh, the pockets to help further the sport of IndyCar racing past a point that I believe the Holman George family could. But at the same time, we go back to that uh, item of stability. I'm not so certain that the Holman George family could have weathered a storm with COVID-19 like we're seeing right now in the same way that the Roger Penske era has already uh, sort of faced those challenges. And to this point, uh, I know there were some furloughs and, and even some layoffs uh, within IndyCar and the Indianapolis Winter Speedway. Hopefully, uh, the series and the track get a lot of those people back because there were a lot of good people working for those entities that uh, need to return to their positions because they were doing good things. Um, but as far as the teams are concerned, I think a lot of the teams were able to continue on uh, with relative normalcy once they were allowed back to their race shops. I know IndyCar was offering up some of the easy early season leader circle funding to these teams almost as if they had been racing already. Uh, obviously, we know that that wasn't the case through March and April uh, and obviously May. I'm not sure how deep those payments went into the spring here, but the bottom line is uh, Penske pretty much out of his own pocket helped fund those early season leader circle payments. And the fact of the matter is that that kept some teams in business. So yeah. I think Roger Penske's impact has already been felt on IndyCar and the Indianapolis Winter Speedway. Uh, he's making facility upgrades as we speak, and that'll help the, the end user experience at IMS. Uh, and this is just the start. I'm excited to see what comes in the future because I think we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a lot of stuff you said there is awesome. Tanner, I mean, uh, a lot of good things there. Uh, Josh, I mean, we we look at it in a sense of Roger Penske, the man who's won everything in motorsports and has been a successful businessman. He's someone who every major American car company wanted that wanted him to run their company. Uh, there was talks a few years ago when Dodge was still in NASCAR, they wanted him to be a part of that whole deal in between some of the mergers that they went through. So when we look at Roger Penske now kind of divesting himself from the, the team side, uh, letting Sindrick, Tim Sindrick handle that per se at the IndyCar side and taking over as the steward of the IndyCar series in Indianapolis Motor Speedway, what are we um, hoping for? What are we looking for on top of what Tanner said, but immediate like benefits that we should see or whatever thoughts you have on the transition to the captain? Well, I mean, like Tanner said, I, I uh, think he'll bring a lot of stability uh, to the IndyCar series. And I think also with that, you know, he understands – open wheel racing here in America and he's been the most I guess the most dominant owner in um, the American open racing wheel history and um, I think also I think one thing that you consider is the popularity of the series right now and I think uh, as his ownership um, goes on I think um, I think well they'll help him or he'll help the series become more popular and reach a greater fan base than it currently is um, because he has the resources to do that, and he has the ability to reach out and grow the series in, in that sense. Um, and I think 
competition-wise, uh, you know, he understands how the owners are because he's an owner himself, and I think he'll make it better for uh, new owners to join the series and potentially maybe even um, new manufacturers and um, I'm possibly maybe even like uh, more chassis than we have right now because right now it's just a, a single kit. Uh, chassis series right now and it's basically just uh, whatever the only thing that's different is just under the hood with either Honda or Chevrolet and maybe potentially we'll go back to the old days of cart uh, kind of the golden age when we had mul- uh, multiple uh, chassis and, and different engine manufacturers yeah I think that's I mean that's definitely a lot of things that could be on the plate Penske knows everybody. He knows all these manufacturers. We've been hearing for years since uh, they changed over to the DW12 that um, they've been trying to get another OEM. Uh, I think that the notion of being able to bring in an OEM is more likely under a Roger Penske run organization because the fact is he can walk into the boardroom and just basically drop do it drop the mic and literally say hey you know we can give you the promotional clout we can give you the opportunity to test uh you know things that could be in the real world as well as on the racetrack and give you a performance uh to re- in a, in a in a format which is one of the most competitive forms of motorsport bar none uh how deep this field has become tanner you're talking about even the back end teams at times can can compete and then josh you talk about the golden days of kart when you had three engine manufacturers two tire manufacturers i think four chassis manufacturers i'm not so sure that we're in a place where it's going to be that expansive. But I do believe that Roger Penske being able to go and have control and be able to lead. I'm looking more in a side because like Tanner being a website owner and being a credential media member, you know, going and getting the media, going and promoting the drivers, promoting the brand, of what IndyCar is, I think that is a key uh, component. I look at Joseph Newgarden and I look at Alexander Rossi, and I think of the current. I think of a modern day Michael and- or Al Unser Jr. and Michael Andretti, and it makes sense because Joseph Newgarden drives for Penske, and Rossi drives for Andretti. It kind of, and the way they are, their character and all that, it kind of fits. But the difference between the heyday of Al, Al Jr. and and Michael in the 90s, 80s into the 90s, and now is that media and promotion was always about those two guys. And of course, you had the Emerson Fittipaldi's, you had. Nigel Mansell when he made his splash. You had the old guard with Mario and et cetera, et cetera. You had other international types. But in the end, the marketing and everything was about those two guys. And Joseph Newgarden's a two-time IndyCar Series champion. And quite frankly, he's one of the coolest guys 
honestly, he has a European understanding of racing and he had to go through that to build himself up to get him to where he is today. And he had to convince Penske that he could do it. And he did. And now he's a two-time champion. And you have Alexander Rossi who got ran out because of Formula One and politics. But the fact is, between the Amazing Race and a couple other, and now the online sim deal, we see the personality of Alexander Rossi. And what kills me as not only a writer or podcaster, but as a fan, we're missing an opportunity when you have two of the most dynamic personalities and they're two of the best drivers in a sport full of deep pool of drivers and we don't know those personalities and we should be hearing about them and they should be on NBC and they should be out. Obviously, we'll get into more details as to why that may be the case. There's also been some issues within IndyCar media and the PR staff, some a lot of uh, turnover over the years, but it's a missed opportunity when you consider those two guys. And I think about the heyday when the, the field was diverse, but we had two legitimate top-line American drivers, and we have that again. And we also have additional American drivers that are really, really good, and the media likes to talk about. And we're not getting them out there in a sport that is really needs sponsorship and needs a lot of help. It's something to be said, and I guess we'll figure it out as we go along. But hopefully with Roger Penske's ownership, we'll be able to market the guys that need to be marketed, which is, frankly, everybody, but the lead dogs so that people, they become household names. That's why, that's part of what makes racing uh, so cool and so worthwhile. Uh, Transitioning to the changes uh with the cars and in general uh the biggest change i think coming in which is one of the biggest changes that has come in many years uh since post uh, dw12 being brought in is a new aero screen um i'll uh send it to you josh first and then i'll let tanner come in uh in terms of what are your thoughts on the aero screen your screen are you for it against what do you think it'll do? Will it make any real effect? Uh, thoughts and takeaways on the aero screen. Yeah, I mean, I think for the aero screen, uh, I think it's a much needed change. You know, we've seen in the past couple of years, ever, I guess, you know, any any time we've seen a major crash where uh, a, a part or a component of the car, like tire, got uh, close to or possibly struck the driver. Um, and we've seen, you know, incidents where we, we had a fatality or major injury. And when we had, um, I think, Will Power back in Sonoma in 2009, he had, I think, a um, injury where um, he got hit or he struck a, a part and any uh, in a crash in practice. And you know, obviously Dan Weldon, uh, Dan Justin Wilson, Wilson, Justin uh, Wilson, all that. And I think it's, it's a Dana much needed too. change. Yeah, that's it. And it's a much needed change to protect the driver. Uh, and I think I think it looks. Um, you know, a lot of people have complained about the aesthetics of it, and I, I think it looks a lot better than what the uh, Halo uh, in F1 that they Im- implemented. And yeah. it's uh, I think it's um, kind of a balance between uh, protection and 
and the look of it. And for me, I think uh, one of the questions I have about it is like, how is it going to affect uh, the driver, especially like um, at high speed tracks, and how is it going to affect their vision and things like that? And I also kind of wonder like if it will change the aerodynamics of the car, given that it's now, um, I guess, sort of smoothing out sort of uh, the area of the, where the driver is. I wonder how, how will the airflow um, change, or like how, how will the aerodynamics change and just how, I guess, that will um, uh, affect the car's handling and things like that. Well, I guess I'll go and send that to you, Tanner, because uh, you may have more uh, details and insights so far based on uh, preseason testing and what the teams have uh, dealt with so far with R&Ding the new aero screen. Yeah, no, uh, Josh hit on a, a lot of great points, um, especially with the safety, obviously. Um, we were always heading to kind of an end road where uh, additional head safety requirements were, were going to be in place with IndyCar. We were never really going to make it through, <laughs> you know, the next decade, nonetheless, the next five years uh, with an open cockpit the way that we had mm-hmm. as soon as Formula One moved ahead with uh, a head safety system that, uh, you know, is quite necessary. I think, uh, like Josh said, the aesthetics of it uh, at first for me, um, I didn't think it looked that great because we were formerly exposed to uh, just the, the more or less windshield type device that was just clear plexiglass or whatever that uh, component was made out of, but it wasn't as bulky. It wasn't as uh, reinforced, I guess you could even say, uh, up top above the driver's head. It fit more like a windscreen um, and less like a full closed canopy aero screen. So once the aero screen was introduced, I was, um, again, happy that it was going to be better in a safety sense, um, but I wasn't quite sure aesthetically how it would fit into the makeup of these uh, current generation Delara chassis. Uh, looking at it from a side-on view, I, I think it looks fairly fairly good. The teams have done a good job of implementing their paint schemes and trying to essentially make the aero screen look like it's part of the original concept. Yeah the best that they can looking at it from a head on view. It's a little bit bulky still. There's not much you can do about that because you can't narrow the top uh, or else the driver wouldn't be able to get in. So that is just kind of what it is. Um, we have to be thankful that it's going to hopefully help protect drivers in a better sense. Um, and, and as far as the looks of it, we just hope that they can integrate something uh, like the arrow screen a little bit better whenever the next generation chassis comes out. As far as the handling characteristics of the cars, I think a lot of uh, pieces of a team setup, you know, if you bring your notebook from Texas last year to the race weekend this year, a lot of things will likely still apply uh, for the race team. So I don't think it'll set them back too terribly far, but there will undoubtedly be some changes to the handling characteristics. Uh, Obviously, the aero screen weighs more than 50 pounds, so you're going to add... you're just adding pure weight to the car. It changes the center of pressure and the center of gravity uh, with the way that the aero screen sits up high. That's, you know, essentially, for one, the car will be more affected by wind, especially cross winds, because it's almost as if you put a billboard right where the driver's head used to be. Uh, so cross winds at the Indianapolis Winter Speedway in particular, that's a track that uh, the drivers talk about the wind more than any other track. 
yeah. they'll notice it for sure, especially during qualifications this year. Uh, so that'll be interesting to follow. Uh, but again, uh, just looking at the center of gravity and the way that the aero screen uh, is placing weight on the center of that car and how high up on the chassis that weight is, uh, that'll certainly add a wrinkle into uh, the setup plans for this weekend. And it'll add a bit of a variable where uh, that could create an opportunity for some of the smaller teams to make a difference where, you know, if it's a normal race weekend at Texas and we've got the same chassis as last year, it could be, you know, rinse and repeat for the big teams that yeah. have figured things out. So it'll definitely be interesting to see how teams adapt to that. And uh, just to follow up on the added weight uh, portion of the aero screen, that's one reason why we saw some horsepower increases added to Indianapolis 500 qualifications this year. Uh, that's kind of to help offset um, what they anticipated would be uh, a bit of reduced speed due to the added weight to the chassis. But also, you know, you go back to the Roger Penske effect. They want to they want to open some eyes and they want to do it right away. And to do that, you want to get the qualifying speeds not only over 230 miles an hour, but well over 230. And and so if they can get into the 231, 232 uh, range, I, I don't think they'll get much higher than that. But it's starting to work back in that direction where uh, I don't know if we'll be hunting for any new track records soon, but I think that's uh, definitely part of the allure of, of the 80s and the 90s and in IndyCar and the Indianapolis 500 in particular. Uh, and, and there wouldn't be anything bad about uh, hunting for track records again if, if we can do it in a safe sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great points by both of you. I, I The visual, the aesthetic of it, being a Formula One guy and looking at the Halo, uh, it's not the most aesthetically pleasing thing. But after a while, I got used to it because it was just there. And then, of course, teams integrated it within their paint schemes. And, of course, they get to build their cars every year. So that's one major difference as Tanner, you know, talking about integrating a car that was built in 2012. Uh, last year, they put that... Uh, I don't know what they called the exact name. They called it in front of that deflection device. They put right in front of the cockpit for basically this same reason, but having a windscreen or arrow screen, I think is, it, it kind of goes to, you know, the space. Like you think about like we had SpaceX go up a couple days ago. Well, you know, it kind of looks like a spaceship. I was listening to an old Stern clip, earlier and they're talking about how we should have been like back in this by this time in this year we were supposed to be flying in cars and jetsons and stuff like that well i think anything that makes the car look faster whatever side profile or profile when we're trying to appeal to different demographics is a good thing uh you look at the die cast as a die cast collector and I just got a bunch of them today and I'm like, it looks weird, but if it means that my drivers or my, or my, these families or these people are going to be here, it's worth the visual effect or whatever the days of, you know, Mario Andretti and AJ Foyt driving around in a, in a dirt champ car, at Indianapolis with their arms out and their shoulders out and all that. Um, 
are are gone. Uh, even 1992, which Mario talked about recently, and how bad the cars were back then, uh, with the feet being in front of the front axle, the car, the the exposure of the shoulders and the head. Um, most in most, uh, of course, Jovi Marcello rest, re, he lost his life, and you have Nelson PK, three-time world champion, basically should have been dead based on the hit that he had there, and which is part of the reason, one of the reasons why they probably got rid of the apron. You know, like all these things, it, it's interesting how IndyCar and Indianapolis Motor Speedway respond to safety, and they've always been ahead of the curve. And this is, I think, yet another example of that, in that you go and bring in an aero screen concept that was was R&D'd and was a possibility for Formula One from Red Bull. Red Bull gets to utilize this technology that they invested in, and it, so it works out for them. It works out for IndyCar. Red Bull may go and get some positive uh, vibes back towards IndyCar after their... Um, uh, interesting time that they had many years ago with Eddie Cheever, um, because anything that involves Eddie Cheever usually involves interesting happenings. Um, at and drive having Tomas Schechter as one of your drivers that also would help. But the thing about the aero screen is that it's a good thing, and um, if it saves one life, it's already uh, better we're better for it than, you know, what we had to go through with Justin Wilson's passing or the serious accidents that we've had, uh, in recent years, uh, you know, the, the, and that's, that's really what you want to avoid. You don't want to have debris flying and hitting and, and getting into the cockpit. And that's really what it's about. And also you don't want it flying into the grandstands either, but, um, We'll see what happens with that. I think it's something that's a great deal for IndyCar, and it moves towards the future. Um, and that's really what we should be looking for. Moving towards the future and discussing what we're going to see starting on. We can go and discuss some of the changes that, uh, took place in the off season. I'll uh, toss to you, Tanner. You can go and kind of um, go over what the big changes that came through in terms of drivers and what we should expect because it'll kind of go into the next step in terms of the rookies. Yeah, of course there were uh, you know plenty of changes. It was a normal silly season, I guess you could say. Uh, in IndyCar, we. Um, pretty much put a bow on on silly season and everybody was all set up to race at St. Pete. So uh, thankfully with coronavirus, none of that stuff was uh, too terribly hampered. We saw uh, obviously Sebastian Bourdais moving out of uh, his role with Dale Coyne Racing. I think that was uh, one of the bigger splashes. Yeah, I mean, that was was crazy um, to see a guy that's clearly got more to give uh, in his uh, open wheel career uh, to be moved out. Um, that was disappointing to see. Uh, obviously we all know this is a business and, uh, that, that kind of comes with the territory sometimes. And I think the same could be said for, for James Hinchcliffe and how Aaron McLaren, uh, Schmidt Peterson went on their own way and, uh, decided to bring in a couple young guns, obviously two 
really accomplished drivers and former Indy Lights champions, Pato Award and Oliver Askew. Uh, so we're excited to see what those guys are going to do. Uh, but at the same time, that relegates two veterans like Hinchcliffe and Bourdais to uh, either Indy-only rides or uh, you see with Bourdais a, a partial you know, road schedule, and he's still hunting for an Indianapolis 500 seat. So uh, difficult to see some, some folks like that moving uh, out of the sport, at least for uh, the time being or in a limited sense. But uh, at the same time, you know, you get excited seeing some young guns like Askew and, and Award get their chance. It's great to see somebody like Marcus Erickson uh, continue to be reinvested in. Uh, obviously, he wasn't part of the Aaron McLaren SP plans either, uh, but Chip Ganassi Racing decided uh, they could pair him with the existing five-time champion and Scott Dixon and a, another promising young driver coming up uh, through the ranks, and that's Felix Rosenquist, who had a great opening season in IndyCar last year. So with that, plus uh, guys like Elio Castroneves getting another chance with Penske, obviously that's great to see. Uh, even better with Penske was the original plans have V8 Supercars champion Scott McLaughlin get a mm-hmm. chance uh, in IndyCar. I think those plans have been put on the back burner for now since the schedules are, are really up in the air, not only both for uh, IndyCar, but more likely than not, Supercars uh, yeah. is, is the hold up there. Uh, but I think at some point we'll see Scott uh, in a Penske IndyCar, so that's great to see some headway being made there. Uh, Felipe Nazar going to join Carlin uh, for some races this year. So excited to see that. Uh, it, it, it was an interesting season, uh, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, silly season in IndyCar uh, with all the things that we, we mentioned there. And then on top of that, you announced that uh, Tony Kanaan will be driving his final season as a primary driver in IndyCar, uh, really just on an oval-only uh, schedule. That's a lot of movement in, in one off season. And then uh, you throw the uh, uncertainty of, of coronavirus and the pandemic and how that's affected this year. Yeah. Uh, that, that certainly throws a wrench into things. And honestly, uh, the 2019 heading into 2019 or 2020 season uh, is like one that, you know, we haven't really seen, uh, at least in the modern era. Uh, and that's only scratching the surface. That doesn't even mention guys like, Rhinus VK getting his shot with Ed Carpenter Racing. Uh, Spencer Piggott going to do an Indy-only run with uh, a Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan affiliated entry. And even R.C. Enerson perhaps uh, taking a shot at the Indy 500 with a new team called Top Gun Racing. Uh, very interesting this this offseason. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot. I mean, then you talk about R.C. as Haggerty and... He was running the the last uh, sim uh, race of their uh, season there, and he utilized that, and he was trying to leverage that towards an Indy 500 run, which, of course, when you consider how tough it is to compete at the Indianapolis 500 as an, as an Indy-only outfit, you need to be able to bring a lot of resources and uh, RC's been a guy that's been in and out of the IndyCar series uh, it'd be interesting to see what he can do. You also add the fact that Charlie Kimball's going to be the one full-time driver for AJ Foyt this year he was 
previously at Carlin, and then the 14 car, what originally was supposed to be Canaan on the ovals, Bourdais here and there, and then Dalton Kellett, uh, the rookie, he's also going to be coming in, and he'll be running as it stands. We don't really know what that schedule is going to be. Bourdais' main commitment right now is driving uh, the Mustang sampling uh, JDC Motorsports or JDC Miller uh, car in the uh, uh, IMSA series and the prototypes uh, at DPI. Uh, so he that's his main commitment. Of course, money was kind of an issue there. So who knows how much of Seb will see after his partnership with uh, Dale Coyne kind of getting run out the door because of Honda or whatever. I mean, it's interesting that it, nothing more has really come out about that when you consider what Sebastian Bourdais has done in open wheel racing in the past two decades that he kind of gets run out the door is sad. Um, the Hinch deal going and getting run out the door is not as shocking to me based on who he was driving for. Um, spam and all that but um, before I go further I'm going to go toss to Josh um, what are your thoughts or what is the most surprising move or, or to you and who do you look for in terms of some of the new guys that are veteran people that could go and make a, make a difference in uh, 2020 in the relative changes uh, I think the most surprising move to me was probably Hinch. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I I thought he um, would get re-signed by uh, Arrow and uh, the new McLaren team, but I guess with the issue with him being a Honda guy, and they switched to Chevrolet, they couldn't work it out, and he ended up becoming a free agent. Now he's on a a part-time deal with uh, Andretti, um, and I I think uh, for me, like the drivers, like kind of look out for is um i mean i'm looking for um colton herta uh to take the next step uh this season and uh, you know other drivers i think uh we'll we'll see um maybe uh ferrucci also he's also um i know that not everybody likes him but he's shown to be a really good talent and he's got a, a good handle of the car and he's got good car control and all that uh, so th- I think those are the guys who I would probably look for on uh, upcoming season to um, do well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Ferrucci taking a lead role at uh, Coin is going to be interesting. There's been some shuffling within uh, Dale Coin's organization. Some of the big players have left, so the notion that um, Ferrucci as a second-year driver is going to have to be a leader after his dad, as he used to call Sebastian Bourdais, was um, summarily let go. Uh, That'll be an interesting dynamic there, Um, and we'll get into his new teammate here in just a moment, but you look at some of the other things. You see Erickson with the third Ganassi car. That's basically utilizing the Ford GT program and keeping a lot of those guys or at least a portion of those guys employed so that they can run a third Indy car, bring Husky chocolate over so that they have three full-time teams. I'm curious as to how 
they will all assimilate together. Rosenquist was making strides by the end of the year uh, to be a contender, but he was inconsistent, of course, as a rookie, which is expected. Um, Dixon is Dixon. You know, he's a legend. Uh, Spam and what they're doing in general, you have two young, fast uh, rookie-type drivers and Paddle Ward, who's been on the RTI uh, run for years and dominated in Indy Lights, may have gotten a raw deal. Uh, we can get into that whole that that's his, for a separate time and a separate show, but now he basically is in Hinch's car. And then Oliver Askew, who battled Renus VK last year and has been battling with Renus for a couple for for years here in the RTI, gets the second seat at Spam. Uh, it looks like uh, Zach Brown's plan is to build young. Uh, you look at his Formula One program with Lando Norris. You look at the V8 supercar situation with Bryce Fullwood. These are all very very young talents that he wants to build long term with Chaz Mostert who has a lot of uh, uh, cross uh, driving abilities of course driving GTs and also in the V8s is a, a, def, a veteran presence along with Daniel Ricardo, who's going to be coming there to the Formula One team next year but they have a plan how they handled the drivers they had there is to be is a separate discussion, but uh, Hinch landed on his feet. He has Genesis. He's going to run Indy, run a few other races. I figure he'll be in play for a ride if he wants a full-time ride uh, next in 2021. Uh, granted, of course, funding and everything like that. I'd also, just before I go any further, you could go on openwheels.com, which is Tanner's website, and himself and Spencer Neff to... Great guys, and they both did a preview way back in March, uh, and I was reading that, and I was trying to get some info just now, just trying to figure out and refresh my memory. So if you guys uh, want to go and read that, I figure there will be more updated stuff before uh, Saturday's uh, race at Texas, too. Uh, but there was, there, there was a lot of changes, a lot of differences. I mean, Bourdais getting run out the door, it, and you look at Kanan being at the end of his line, it's probably a little longer. I mean, the fact he held on this long was probably because of his name and popularity, not as much about his uh, productivity. But um, uh, at least he'll get to run Indy, and he's always been great at Indy. Uh, he'll be able to be at Texas. Hopefully he'll be able to do something at Texas. He's always kind of been good there as well. So... Um, that is, in terms of the changes, in terms of drivers, uh, the next step, the next piece is we talked about Ferrucci. You talked about Ferrucci, Josh, and his new teammate is part of a deep rookie class. And, uh, Tanner, I want to send it to you. In terms of this rookie class, like we had Colton Hurdle last year, we had Felix Rosenquist, but, and Erickson. But I honestly believe that this rookie class class in terms of raw talent and potential could be one of the best rookie classes we've ever seen in IndyCar racing. So what are your thoughts on the rookies for 2020 and their prospects going into not and not probably one of the most 
interesting, weird seasons there's ever been in IndyCar racing. Yeah, we thought uh, we saw some weird stuff um, during the split and in the early uh, 2000s, but this will definitely um, move on to another level when you compare to that. Uh, talking about the rookies, I mean, it's, it's certainly an exciting class. Um, you've got some guys that have been proven in the American Open Wheel Ladder category, like Askew, Rhinus VK. Uh, those guys have been slugging it out ever since they got into USF 2000. Uh, and I'm very excited to see uh, them compete. You know, they both get full-time schedules right out the gate, which is awesome to see. Um, you don't always get that in IndyCar. A lot of yeah. times you'll see some of these uh, rookies come out of Indy Lights and they get, you know, a partial road and street course schedule with the Indy 500 thrown in. Uh, and the bottom line is it's it's hard for a rookie to build up confidence, uh, build up an understanding of how to work with uh, race engineers and, and a team at the IndyCar level. That's hard enough when you're on a full-time basis. When you're only able to do it every two or three races, that makes it even more difficult. So it's great to see those two guys get full season slates. And the same can be said, I guess, for Alex Palou that'll be uh, joining Dale Coyne Racing. Alex is a little bit more of an unknown when you gauge him against guys like VK and Askew and how he'll acclimate to this American open wheel uh, layout that, that we have here in IndyCar. But... I'm not going to put that much stock into sim racing success, but he did all right in the iRacing IndyCar Challenge, and we were excited to see uh, guys like him running up front. The same could be said for a more experienced driver in Sage Karam, who's gotten a little bit more uh, exposure through the iRacing venture. But Alex did well in, in showing himself in the first real opportunity he had in representing Dale Coyne Racing. So good on him. I hope to see some great things out of Alex this year. And, and he could be one of those guys that makes or breaks how good this rookie class really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sold on, on Dalton Kellett yet. He's a very experienced driver in the road to Indy. So I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't think he'll be a liability or anything like that out there. Um, but I'm not sure he's, he's shown enough, at least in Indy lights, you know, he ran with Andretti Autosport, which has really been the only team in town, uh, to run a, a full host of cars in Indy Lights in recent years. And that program has produced champions. Uh, and Dalton hasn't really been at the forefront of that success um, for Andretti and Indy Lights to this point, despite uh, having plenty of opportunities. So I'm not going to uh, to bury him just yet, but uh, I'll be interested to see what he does with an AJ Foyt team that has been historically bad. Uh, over the past few seasons. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, how he performs. But going back to Palou, I think he's one of those guys that teeters this rookie class on the edge of, of good and great. Um, if he has a great season, then I think um, you know him paired with Askew and, and VK will almost certainly make this one a rookie class to remember. And then anything that Kellett can do on top of that uh, is just kind of icing on top of the cake. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, and we can't forget Felipe Nazar, who uh, right now we don't know. Carlin's situation is very fluid. Uh, the 50, the the one car they have there with um, 
with with Chilton is gonna run road road courses, and we forgot we didn't mention Connor Daly, uh, social media master Connor Daly, uh, Twitch master Connor Daly, whatever a man of many talents. He has got basically a full-time deal because he's running Ed Carpenter's 20 car on the road and street circuits, and he'll be running the races that Max Chilton isn't going to be running uh, in the the Carlin 59 or whatever number it's going to be. So he'll have a full season for basically the first time since he ran for AJ in the four car. Uh but Nazar, Formula One driver previously, Brazilian uh, sports car ace, prototypes, GT. Uh, if he can get a, a deal together, get some money together, I think Carlin could benefit greatly from his prowess on road courses, especially um, former teammate with Marcus Erickson at Sauber. So that'd be interesting to see for sure. And, uh, Josh, what are your thoughts on, uh, the specifically I'll, I'll go into the battle between Askew and Renus VK, because those two guys have been at it for a while. Um, I mean, in general thoughts on the rookie class, but those two guys and what we should look for being that they're both driving full time. Well, I think in general, uh, we should see a good rookie battle and it's definitely a solid class. Uh, I think, you know, we got a, we kind of got a preview of how, not really preview, but, you know, we, we saw with how they were in sim racing and they were highlighted a lot with uh, NBC and we got, kind of got to see a little bit of a preview of how they, they could run and they all had kind of uh, good moments, uh, I guess you could say, with uh, the sim racing part uh, during the pandemic. Um, but I, I think we should see a, a good battle like, uh, that what Tanner said with uh, Oliver Askew and uh, with Renus VK. Um, but one thing that I, I want to kind of highlight is like they're all with uh, good, really solid teams. You know, yeah. Askew's with uh, McLaren and VK's with uh, Ed Carpenter. And those those guys are, um, they're not the elite teams of IndyCar and uh, anything like that, but they're definitely at least solid mid level teams that can. You know, they any time. I mean, they they can compete for a win or a podium finish, but they can also you know uh, have a solid season and make steady gains. and And that's something that you know you have to consider as well because you have a good driver, but if uh, they don't have a, a great team or, or a good team around them, you might not be able to get get to see their uh, full performance. And that's something that you have to consider with Dalton Kellett because uh, he's with uh, Foyt Racing. And, you know, Foyt Racing has kind of been uh, a backmarker, really, in IndyCar. They, you know, they, they've been able to get some solid finishes um, as a team. But overall, you don't really see them compete a lot uh, for podiums or, or even for wins, really. And so we'll see how uh, the team's uh, performances will affect um, his results and um, all that, but um, yeah, I, I think also with um, uh, Alex Palau, I think he he'll be a solid driver too, and um, you can never uh, count out coin racing, and and um, it'll be interesting to see the dynamic between him and Ferrucci. They're both uh, young drivers, and and yeah. how uh, how they'll uh, you know lean on each other to get better. Yeah, that's a great point you talk because I was going to go on Palou because 
Palau Palau, I guess we'll find out when Lee Diffie pronounces his name because I just love listening to Lee Diffie pronounce anything, quite frankly. But he his existence, him being available, he was driving Super Formula in Japan, which is basically uh, uh, a light version. It's, it, it's comparable to Formula 2. It's a very high level of... Uh, in in Japan and you have both Toyota and Honda involved you have top flight drivers in there you have former Formula 1 drivers there and Palou held his own there and competed in Team Go which is a Honda affiliate is supporting Palou here in his move over to IndyCar and Coin was very hungry to get him over here which may have precipitated uh, the the moving of Bourdais, but when you consider the history of Ferrucci and how he's dealt with teammates before, um, it's possible that if Palou actually does something, as Tanner says, like he's the one who's who's able to show up and do something, uh, we might find out the other side of Santino, uh, which we'll discuss in a moment. Uh, the the VK, the he's a protege of Ari Lyondike. You know, these uh, drivers from the Netherlands, you got one big one, of course, in Formula One. But VK has come here and he's trying to apply his trade in America. Uh, didn't get as fair of a shake in Europe. And he has proven himself to be very fast. And Carpenter has been struggling to find a full-time guy with funding that could compete. And VK might be that guy uh, for him. And uh, it, because he's young and he's got a lot of potential, there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. And for Ed and his team being a fledgling team, they need to have guys that are that are long term investments because there's no guarantee that every single one of them is going to end up going to Penske. I mean, Joseph Newgarden was the perfect storm uh, of things and it's worked out. But the fact is Penske waited years before he even went on that because Miller wanted him there way before he got there. Um, But, you know, what it looks like is with VK, he has the ability to build there. And you have Connor Daly, who's close with Ed and who's close with all these people. There's a possibility that Ed might have some stability finally at his race team. And he could build something with those two guys. And... uh, with Askew and McLaren, as I went on earlier, I think he's part of a long-term plan with them. Hopefully, uh, they have the patience between him and Pato, because Pato is definitely quick, and he's aggressive, and obviously Askew is aggressive. So we'll we'll see what happens. There's going to be a lot of days where... They make great runs, and there might be a lot of days where they end up with uh, damaged cars or DNFs. But when you're a young team and you've made that choice, you have to take that, and you have to be willing to deal with the consequences. And I think that the word consequences is a good way to transition into this next topic, which is a topic that of Tanner's well-versed in everything, of course, that we've talked about so far, but 
as a sim racer, as somebody who runs a sim race, the Open Wheels 500 at Indy, um, I I wanted to send this to you because you've kind of gotten the brunt of it just in that last 45 laps of that race. You went through the whole uh, thing of emotions, the whole semblance of emotions at the last stint of that race to end up getting what happened to you happen. Uh, Santino and his actions towards Oliver Askew at the end of that race, which allowed Scotty McLaughlin to win, um, which I think will be the first of many wins at Indy for him with Penske, uh, because he's going to be in a Penske Indy car eventually. Um, not fanboying out just the reality. He wants Scott Dixon 2.0, and that's what he is. So I think my question is to you, uh, Tanner, it's like, do we do these actions, some of the actions that we saw in the sim situation based on who they are and what they're about, will they cross over? Are we going to see uh, retribution at a road course, let's say, for some of these actions? Or what are we going to expect based on some of the actions we saw during the sim season? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh all worthy and and I would say worthwhile to uh, have have brought up and analyzed the situations as they played out uh, during the iRacing IndyCar Challenge because there really wasn't much else that uh, we yeah. had to do during March and April. So it offered us a, a nice reprieve from the difficulties that we were faced with uh, the series that we love and, and sports as a whole being shut down due to the coronavirus it gave us something to pay attention to something to write about something to talk about which was all great and some of the talk was centered around some great sim racing and uh some battles that played out that we we really enjoyed we saw simon pagino and scott dixon have a great battle towards the end during the race at motegi uh and then we also saw Will Power, Scott McLaughlin with a great race at Barber. Sage Karam kind of walked away with the season opener at Watkins, Watkins Glen. Glen. So we kind of had the full gamut of, of results there play out, but we also had some bad stuff play out. We saw a little bit of games and, gamesmanship from Simon Pagino trying to slow up uh, Lando Norris towards the end of that Indianapolis sim race. We saw Santino Ferrucci, as we previously mentioned, uh, turn Oliver Askew on the front stretch at Indianapolis, just a few hundred yards from the start-finish line. So um, it was a little bit of good and bad. Uh, with that being said, even though the tempers were running hot a little bit, especially towards the end of the iRacing thing when uh, some guys were, were fed up with it a little bit, the fact of the matter is all these guys are extremely competitive Obviously, they all want to do well in anything that they do. That's just the nature of, of their DNA, and they wouldn't be an IndyCar if it wasn't for that. Yeah. Uh, with that being said, I don't think any of the sim racing run-ins per se should carry over to real life. I, I think um, even with somebody that's as young and, and brazen as Santino Ferrucci, he understands the real-life risk and the implications of what an action like – we saw at Indianapolis and in iRacing uh, what that would mean in, in real life, obviously not only 
the physical danger that you put yourself in, but uh, the same ramifications that um, you could see sponsorship fall out. Uh, and that is obviously the most important thing um, that, that, that we can glean from not only sim racing, but real life racing is if there's no sponsor, there's no driver. And yeah. if uh, you lose your backing, uh, especially in something like IndyCar, uh, then, then your day is done essentially in that facet of your career. So hopefully we don't see anybody uh, carry over any grudges from sim racing. I don't think we will. And we've already heard a few drivers speak out and say, no, that's that's a non-factor. Obviously, we can get heated in the moment when we're sitting at our rigs and in our living room and whatnot. But uh, when we're inches away from each other at Texas going over 200 miles an hour yeah. on Saturday, uh, I don't think – I don't think anything uh, like turn four or the front stretch at Indianapolis and in the last sim race will come to mind. I wanted to follow up as well in terms of uh, your experience in, in the sim game. Uh, you've, you were up there up front, you've been successful, you run your own race. What did you think of the overall product that we saw across those six weeks from Watkins Glen where uh, some guys, of course, were fully immersed and already had been like Sage, who's been at it for years to the end, which was another oval, which one thing that I think we've realized across the sim game, both with the IndyCar and the NASCAR, that certain racetracks and certain types of racing lead to more incidents uh, my question is, in terms of um, quality and driving standard for you um, as somebody who understands the game, and then I'll switch to Josh because he understands him way more than I do. I mean, my my days of driving NRO3 were back in 03, and it was with a keyboard. So I'm nowhere near as much of a sim guy. Um, what were your thoughts on the quality that we saw um, of the not just the driving, but just the presentation and everything that we saw over those six weeks relative to maybe other series. Yeah, no, I, I think first and foremost, you have to understand that uh, uh, IndyCar was was operating on somewhat of a limited staff during the time that the iRacing IndyCar Challenge was was being held. So I think uh, big props should go out to SJ Lukey um, with IndyCar, uh, Kate. Uh, the communications uh, leader for IndyCar, Kate Davis. She did a great job. Uh, Susie Elliott from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. These women were tasked with uh, handling uh, a, a multifaceted sim league that really had to be thrown together um, at the last minute. Uh, Joe Hodge, uh, another one that, that did a great job um, in, in helping organize some of the logistics um, with with the IndyCar Sim Racing uh, Enterprise, they did a great job at, at doing what they could uh, with the relative short time span that they were given. Now, with that being said, from the jump, IndyCar has been behind NASCAR in all esports ventures, uh, and most importantly with, with iRacing. NASCAR has had a, a pro league, um, not for the real-life professional drivers, but for the sim racing professionals, uh, for many years now, um, many of us in the IndyCar community have clamored for uh, the IndyCar equivalent of that, and, and we've yet to see that. So 
when NASCAR made that transition to esports and, and iRacing uh, as a weekly entertainment product back in March, it was a much easier transition for them, I believe, than it was for IndyCar. With that being said, I think IndyCar still did a fairly good job. They did a good job of tying NBC Sports into uh, the production and got those races on the NBC Sports Network. So uh, that was a, a fine piece of work by them. And I, I think you made a good point that uh, some tracks will show better uh, than others when you look at uh, authenticity and, and the way that uh, the actual racing unfolds. Um, I think track like Michigan, while we were all ex excited to see that return in any facet uh, to IndyCar racing, uh, I know you know I was the spotter for James Davison during that race and. Uh, for me, it wasn't much fun being in the middle yeah. <laughs> of, of all that pack racing. And, and I think uh, we, we've we seen the drivers in IndyCar try to move away from, from any semblance of pack racing since it's so dangerous. Um, you know, I think even with uh, uh, the reducing downforce in this new aero kit, that, that's one part of that equation where they've tried to make it safer for the drivers and make passing uh, a much more earned opportunity. So you look at a track like Michigan, and, and again, while it was great to be there, um, the, the blanket racing, as I call it, and the, the massive pack racing, that's not something that we would see in real life. Um, I think the road courses played out yeah, relatively they... well. Um, and Indianapolis was okay. It, it kind of can lend itself to the same pack racing and um, sometimes you get put in bad situations on the sim that uh, you, you would hope guys wouldn't do in real life, but obviously when you're racing on the computer, um, the risk versus reward is, is a lot different, that ratio. Um, I think another thing to, to mention is the fact that you had a bunch of guys uh, on one hand that were fairly committed to sim racing, and they saw it as an opportunity not only to gain good results uh, in any facet of IndyCar racing, but to grow their brand. And you mentioned Connor Daly earlier. He did a great job, and his Twitch stream was one of the um, most viewed forms of, of exposure for the iRacing IndyCar Challenge. You look at a guy like Sage Karam and his team, Dry and Reinbold Racing. Uh, I wrote in my article uh, earlier, or I guess it was later last week, uh, making the case for sim racing and how it has value in motorsport. What other scenario where we would have seen Sage Caramon Sports Center back in March, uh, other than the iRacing IndyCar Challenge? You yeah. know, there was a very low chance that uh, he has a great run at St. Petersburg, for example, that would have put him on ESPN's, uh, you know, biggest show. So I, I think there were certainly positives to draw from those who really embrace sim racing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there were also a handful of drivers that didn't take it as seriously, um, weren't as quick to adapt to it. That wasn't as much their fault. But uh, when you sort of have that divide in the field and you have a group of guys that are taking it very seriously uh, and then another group of guys that are out there more or less to fulfill sponsorship or team obligations, I think that can hamper the product at times uh, and make the actual visuals and the aesthetics of the competition that's going on, which uh, I could touch on later with Open Wheels 500. If you get the right group of guys together and the right 
uh, series administration together and stewards, you can have a very competitive sim race that uh, also looks good on a broadcast. Um, unfortunately, when you get that mix of, of interest uh, yeah. levels, that, that can certainly um, diminish the ceiling or, or lower the ceiling of what you can achieve um, when you're trying to promote realism, which is what you're trying to do when you, you work iRacing into the mix. Yeah, I mean that's definitely, and I I wanted to ask you because you're you've done it all. You've driven. You've you've also had to be a, a a steward. You've had to manage the whole bit. So I wanted to go to you and get your thoughts because I the reality is for me I loved it in the sense that it was there and we had it. I also. Um, was kind of disturbed by some of the actions that we saw on ovals relative to what we saw on road courses, which looked basically like what we would see on a regular road course. Um, I think it kind of proved that Scotty could, Scotty McLaughlin could show up right now and compete because the fact is he did it during spring training and he was on pace in spring training in a real car then he's very comfortable in the sim and he went and showed up and did it not only on an oval but on a road course but then he also did it on an oval um that that was one thing that was i mean for me as a scotty mclaughlin mark as a it was great and it's making me question my hatred of chevy because now I'm gonna might have to root for a guy in a Penske Chevy because he's that good. But I mean, you the 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 pluses that came from the the iRacing challenge to me far outweigh the obvious negatives. Of course, um, Josh, I'm gonna go to you here in a second uh, because. I'm going to transition it towards one of the positives. I know we talked about the negatives that came from it, not only in the NASCAR, IndyCar side, but the NASCAR side as well, uh, people losing their jobs. Um, but, I mean, I, I, that's for another day. I could go off on a tangent on that personally. But I think the positives that came from this sim racing and iRacing and you know, you talk about the other different uh, sims that you have, a set of Corsa, you know, R-Factor. The R-Factor having the race with the legends, even though Jack Nichols is an awful announcer and Julian Palmer shouldn't be allowed to talk in anything. Having the legends and having guys like Dario Franchitti and the like, going and driving around and they're competitive still in old formula one cars is cool to me. I'll watch it. My cousin's sitting there with me while I'm watching the better half dash or whatever they had a couple of weeks ago at gateway. And I wasn't, I was interested cause I thought it was cool. You know, it, and it's something that you just brought up Tanner that it's like the, the Robert, Robbie Wickens. I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan. A lot of us are fans of Robbie and the fact that he was able to come back and he was as competitive as he was, especially on ovals, uh, given his setup that he has because he hasn't been able to get his, uh, uh, steering set up to where he doesn't have to have a hand, 
uh, break. It was unbelievable, and and on he was able to compete at at Barber from dead last. He got a top ten finish for a guy who has been severely injured in a race car, and then to come back. I think if there's one thing that you could take away from sim racing, I look at Robbie Wickens, I look at Kevin Swindell, I look at Juan Manuel Correa. Those are three men that have been severely injured in a race car. Two of them that are in some semblance of trying to walk again. I mean, definitely Robbie, uh, but not so sure about Kevin. But And then you add Juan Manuel Correa, who doesn't have the ability to use the one leg, and he's able to use one leg and he's able to drive. It makes sim racing worthwhile. So, Josh, I want to send it to you. Like, what are the positives that you took away from the sim uh, season? I mean, that's still going on and we still have things happening. But what do you take away in terms of uh, positives that you got from the IndyCar sim? Uh, based on this is good. Well, I, I have to kind of agree with you on that with uh, Robbie Wickens. You know, he's we don't know um, if he's going to get a, a chance or opportunity to drive in real life as it is right now. Uh, we'll have to see how he continues and progresses with uh, his injury. But, uh, you know, it was important to see him back in some semblance of competition and I, I liked that he was able to not only race with his uh, peers and fellow racers, but just the fact that he was able to go out there on the virtual world and uh, do do well. And and I that was uh, something that I like I like to see. And and I think you know it's it's important that we are able to um, get drivers who you know don't have that opportunity in real life, whether they're injured or or they don't have a ride currently, or or they don't have the best ride, that they're able to go on the sim and and show the type of performance that, that, they, that they can put on with uh, their driving skills and, and all that. But, um, you know, the other thing was that we saw a lot of uh, guest drivers participate in the series. Like we saw yeah. Jimmy Johnson participate. We saw Dale Jr. participate and Kyle Busch. And and we know that Scott McGoffin is going to race in IndyCar for sure, but it was also great to see him go out and participate in the series as well. And for guys like uh, Jimmy Johnson and Dale Jr., like I don't think they're likely to be in an IndyCar. Uh, maybe Jimmy um, Jr. for sure. Uh, I don't think he'll actually no. race, but yeah. uh, you know, I I think it it was great to see them race and at least uh, compete with the IndyCar uh, drivers and. I think it was important, um, you know, for them to, you know, go out and and show that you know they potentially could, you know, race well uh, on the IndyCar side if they uh, went that direction. And you know, I think we'll eventually maybe we might see Kyle Busch in the IndyCar series, uh, IndyCar or the Indy 500 most likely if he decides to go that route. But I thought it was good to see him in that um, race at Mategi. Um, but I think it was, I, I think for all that to happen, that was what I thought was positive. Yeah, I think the one thing that IndyCar had, and I mean, we talk about uh, supercars, they've been very open with it and they've handled it the right way. They have, they have wild cards, 
uh, all across the world. You're you're talking about NASCAR guys. You're talking about people from two wheels. You're talking people from all semblances of life. And they're they have wild cards, and they also have the regular drivers. They're all in, and it's being run as though it's like a regular race. And whether you watch it or not, I mean, for me as a supercars fan, as a motorsports fan in general, I respect the fact that they have treated this, their, their iRacing challenge as though it's a regular thing, because that's what IndyCar was missing. If they had basically came out and said, okay, well, we have this money and we're going to treat it as such and such, then... Yeah, there would have been a lot of pissed off wives and girlfriends, but there might have been a better quality of driving, especially on the ovals. But I do give credit to IndyCar and the fact that they were willing to get the NASCAR guys out. I'm sure Dale Jr.'s 164 uh, uh, nationwide car is going to sell out. That's going to probably be the best selling 164 the whole year for any IndyCar there is uh because it's dale jr um the the fact that he'll never get anywhere near an indy car in real life because uh because amy won't let him and, and kelly uh, but the the fact that he drove that race and he drove it as strategically as he did kind of shows what kind of mental game he had and understanding what he had to deal with within a very uh a difficult set of circumstances as Tanner was talking about with James Davison with the, you know, the, uh, the one, why am I forgetting the name of the team? Uh, the uh, bird team with the, the Jonathan bird team, you know, and that whole, and I mean, James Davison, I personally loved because he, him and will, I wish the two of them had a had a podcast. There wouldn't be a drop button quick enough for the two of them because the amount of wankers and other awful things they could come up with, the two of them got so angry. It was beautiful. That's why I love Joseph's live streams after because he'd go, he's like, yeah, what, right when I get off this, Will's going to call me and he's going to be raging on the phone about how mad he is. And I'm like, well, that's it. That's that's why I love it. And that's why they made the Toronto Motorsports when they did the better half dash and they showed Will with Liz's water bottle and bending it and destroying it which is my joke for Frank and Missy and cause they love willpower so much. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, I, the, the I racing challenge brought way more good than bad. And, and there's something to be said about that in, in the world we are living in now, switching over to a more positive uh, uh, thing before we get to something that would be, uh, a little difficult. Uh, what are we thought? What are our thoughts for uh, champions uh, for the series this year, and also for the Indy 500? I'll I'll go and take off on this uh, first. I think uh, Scotty. I think Scotty, meaning Scott Dixon, goes and gets number six. He finally had a boy. Bo is there, and. Uh, he wants to go and bring him 
home uh, championship. He'll get to go and say, hey, you were born and I was born again and all this stuff. And I mean, I know Ganassi, he's he's the longest tenured Ganassi employee uh, outside of Mike Hall and maybe a couple other people. Uh, he's won everything. Uh, he hasn't won Indy more than once, which is crazy. But I think this is the year he gets number six and he brings home the title for his son. And uh, in terms of the Indianapolis 500, I think Joseph Newgarden doesn't win the championship, but he gets his Indy 500, which means he'll have permanent job security like Rick Mears. And, uh, you know, it's Penske's place. It would make sense that the Penske guy and the American the guy with the blue eyes and the looks like he should be in in fashion commercials finally goes and comes through with uh, the Indy 500 win. Uh, I'll go to you, Josh, and then I'll switch over to Tanner because it'll work around for the next topic. Yeah, I think I um, Scott Dixon, he'll, he's always been a championship favorite. And he'll continue to be as long as uh, he's employed and as long as, you know, he stays driving in the in-car series. Um, but I think him, Joseph Newgarden, he'll he'll definitely be a contender for the championship. And he'll um, have to defend his championship from last year. And uh, Will Power and probably Simon Pagano as well, they're yeah. always solid. You can, only, you can never count them out. Um, I think... Potentially, uh, and also you can't count out uh, Alexander Rossi, and yep. you know he, he's always going to be a factor. And I think you know the he almost won Indy last year, and I I would probably pick him as a contender. I don't know if he, he'll be as strong as uh, Joseph Newgarden or or Penske at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, when they race the Indy 500, but I think. I would pick him if, um, as the favorite for the Indy 500. He's, he's a, I think he wants to win the race on merit rather than on fuel mileage. I mean, it was a great strategy when he won in 2016 as a rookie, but I think he wants to go out there and win it outright like he almost yeah. did last year and the great battle that he had with Simon Pagano. Um, but I think a dark horse contender maybe for the championship, not for the championship, but you know, just uh, someone who's an up, upriser I think is – Probably uh, Colton Herta, like I said before, uh, he impressed me a lot last year, and he had a, a victory at uh, at Coda in Texas, and uh, I think he'll be a driver uh, going forward that I think will probably be a part, big part of the future for the IndyCar series. What are your thoughts, Tanner, in terms of what we can expect for a championship favorite, championship favorites? And uh, the biggest one, the most important race, the Indy 500. What are your thoughts on who we should look for for both of those? Yeah, if um, just looking back here at my my season preview article, um, somehow I've picked the last two series champions right in order. So uh, I usually get most of my other picks wrong, but for whatever reason, I I get that one. Um, So when I was doing some homework for – uh, this predictions article we had back in March. Uh, if I have this correct, it, it appears that since 2008, yeah. uh, only only one driver has won the championship that hasn't driven for either Chip Ganassi Racing or Team Penske, and that was 
Brian Hunter Ray back in 2012. So uh, you look at it and you say, well, Ganassi and Penske have been on a string of dominance that uh, perhaps you don't expect to necessarily end anytime soon. They're the teams with the most resources uh, and quite frankly, the most accomplished drivers. Uh, but in the same vein, you, you have to expect at some point um, another team is, is going to break in and, and win the championship. That, that string of uh, success can't go on forever. And I think in the last couple of years, Alexander Rossi has come so close um, and has had two fairly good seasons um, that, that just, you know, at the end of the day, they haven't resulted in championships. And for somebody as competitive as him, I know um, he probably feels about the same way with the championship as he does finishing second at the Indy 500, where if you're not first, um, you really have, you know, that much more room to grow. Uh, and I think a lot of the tough lessons that he, as a driver and his team, uh, that number 27 group with Andretti Autosport, the things that they've learned over the last couple of years, I think eventually uh, they're going to put it all together. And 2020 could be that year, uh, especially with, you know, how strange of a season this is going to be. They're trying to get as many rounds together as they can to uh, put together a full season and a full championship. But, you know, we're going to have some double headers at certain tracks. The Indy 500 could be in, in very hot conditions in August, which, I think the cream rises to the top there more than any other track. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's obviously proven himself in, in even just a few short years uh, with his track record at, at IMS. So uh, I think Rossi is, is certainly uh, the front runner for the championship as we, we head into the first race this weekend. For Indy 500 winners, uh, I normally take a bigger swing at things. Uh, and, and we talked about how impressive the rookie class is for IndyCar this year. If we look at the, the part-timers that will be running the Indy 500 this year, that's an impressive class all in its own. Uh, in that group, you'll have Tony Kanaan, Elio Castroneves, just right there, that's four Indy 500 wins, one for Kanaan and three for Elio, uh, as he continues to, to chase that elusive fourth. You've got a former 500 pole sitter in James Hinchcliffe. You've got Fernando Alonso coming back. Uh, he's shown that he can be fairly quick at Indy, given the right equipment. Sage Karam has driven through the field multiple times. You've got Ed Carpenter, a multi-time Indianapolis 500 pole sitter. And then you've also got guys like Spencer Piggott, James Davison, and Sebastian Bourdais. And they've all shown pace uh, at Indy at some point in their careers. So, you look at that part-time class, and the last time we had a part-time winner uh, that took the checkered flag first at the 500, that was the late Dan Weldon back in 2011. Uh, I think at some point, uh, just in the same vein, that we'll see uh, the Ganassi-Penske strangle hold broken relatively soon in the championship, uh, we could see another part-timer win the 500 at some point soon. Uh, and this year could be could be the year with... Uh, such a stout part-time class that we'll see at the 500 in, in August. Yeah, I mean, that this Indy 500, not just because we didn't have, have it in our usual May, in the month of May, but when you consider all the things that are built up around it, 
and the indie only or the likely last races and I mean it's probably Tony Kanan's last race uh next to last race of his career you have Alio trying to chase four because he's the only guy that can because uh Dario's never going to race again in IndyCar there's a it, the potential for this Indy 500 to be dramatic I mean just to make the field is going to be uh interesting it's going to make qualifying more interesting than it has been in a long time uh i mean championship you said rossi and when you think when you when reading what tanner wrote on openwheels.com but also when you think about what rossi has been doing in recent years it's so eerily similar uh to what Michael Andretti did in his heyday. Um, yeah, he had a really crazy year in 91, won a bunch of races, finished second in Indy 500 uh, to Rick Mears and w- was just dominant outside of Indy. Even though he finished second, he was pretty good there too. And he won so many races, eight races out of whatever, 16 and that hasn't happened with Rossi, so who knows? Maybe he does that this year. But, I mean, that's one thing that makes IndyCar so uh, compelling. Because, yeah, you have those big three teams. You have Penske, Ganassi, Andretti. You also have the smaller efforts that can kind of, you know, make their mark here and there. And may sneak in with a win or may sneak in with a podium. But... In the end, it's going to come down to those big three teams and Ken Rossi in an expanded team, knowing that Colton Herta is a full-time member, uh, a fifth car out of Andretti full-time this year. Can Rossi take that step? Uh, will Ryan hunter uh kind of help him and uh, be like an elder statesman guy since the luck hasn't been in his favor in the last few years uh, and pick his spots uh, to go and win races. It's going to be interesting to see for sure. Um, One thing before we get, we leave uh, here tonight uh, is the recent news that the Indy light series will not be running in 2020. Um, obviously if you are a fan of the road to Indy, Indy lights back in the eighties, it started, I was watching the Tommy Byrne, uh, documentary a couple days ago. So it was interesting thinking about Indy lights and how he flamed out of formula one and came to Indy lights, never got his opportunity in IndyCar, and there it's happened here and recent years it's happened back in the day uh but the fact that indy lights will not be running this year uh what does it truly mean uh for for the series itself and the viability uh and i i'll i'll send this to you tanner first like viability of the series what do we see because you mentioned it earlier on in the show about Andretti basically making up half the field. Uh, They usually would have eight or nine cars and most races. 
and Andretti had four of them. So what does it mean in terms of viability for the field? Does it uh sense does it send uh, a thing in terms of what IndyCar drivers should or IndyCar team should be doing uh committing uh drivers or teams to that series what are we supposed to look at in terms of what has transpired with the uh, Indy lights uh not running and that announcement yeah i mean it was difficult to uh to hear first the reports on on Sunday evening that Indy Lights was headed towards a, a 2020 hiatus uh, that was first reported by Steve Wittich and the good guys at Trackside Online, uh, and then we got the official word this morning from the Road to Indy, and unfortunately, we we've seen Indy Lights sort of dying a slow death over the past few years, um, with the car counts slowly diminishing. You saw teams like Carlin and Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports exit Indy Lights after they further invested in their IndyCar programs. So it's been great to see um, IndyCar become a product that is is more cost-effective and uh, more team-friendly to the point where we're seeing some of these teams graduate uh, from the road to Indy into IndyCar programs, almost like we've seen the drivers themselves graduate from the road to Indy up to IndyCar. Um, but at the end of the day, there hasn't been anybody coming in behind those teams leaving and restacking the cupboard, so to speak, uh, within Indy Lights itself. We're not seeing teams move up from USF 2000 or Indy Pro 2000 and, and, and fill those voids left. Uh, by teams moving up to IndyCar from Indy Lights. So I think we have to look at the product. And one thing that the Road to Indy has done well is they uh, established a chassis between USF 2000 and Indy Pro 2000 where you can easily make the climb or or run at the same time uh, a USF 2000 program and an Indy Pro 2000 program with a relatively same budget. Uh, the Indy Pro 2000 car has more aerodynamic options, a uh, little bit different tire characteristics, and of course, more horsepower than the USF 2000 version of that rules package. But at the end of the day, you're starting with the same uh, canvas with the same chassis between the two series. And I think with Indy Lights, you, you almost have to unify the Road to Indy in some way and it would be ideal to have one chassis across all three levels where you would obviously have different engine plans for each level because uh, not each guy uh, or not each uh, rung on the road to any ladder can handle uh, the same horsepower and the same engine characteristics. Obviously, you want a little bit of differentiation between those levels. Um, so you could accomplish that with different uh, engine packages and obviously different aerodynamic options and different tire packages. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to make the road to Indy, um, that barrier of entry, much easier for teams not only looking to enter the series for the first time, uh, but also teams that are looking to move up and, and build their programs through the road to Indy. Um, I think it would be difficult to enforce any rules that, that require uh, IndyCar teams to run 
you know, any Road to Indy programs. Obviously, in a perfect world, it would be great to see uh, teams with, with feeder teams, essentially, um, which is more common in NASCAR. And, and obviously, we only really see Andretti Autosport doing that right now uh, on the IndyCar side. Uh, I think it would be difficult to implement that just for the, the, the pure sense that the Road to Indy simply doesn't generate uh, enough revenue or enough exposure uh, to warrant the current cost to run in those series. You look at, at Indy Lights, and, and it's a relatively expensive uh, developmental program to embark on. Uh, when you compare it to something like ARCA, for example, uh, it doesn't even generate the exposure that ARCA generates. And that sort of series runs underneath the uh, the trucks and the Xfinity series on the NASCAR side in terms of exposure. So the, the return on investment, especially for sponsors, uh, when you're asking them to <laughs> pony up, you know, not only hundreds of thousands, but even million uh, dollar paychecks to help fund indie Lights programs for teams, that's a big ask. And and so I think some widespread changes are necessary. Um, obviously, that's easier said than done, but this hiatus here at least gives the Road to Indy and IndyCar a chance to have those open discussions, uh, see what's possible down the line. And going back to the Roger Penske factor, if there's anybody that's um, tuned in to to make uh, some widespread changes, I think it would be him. Uh, and, and to get the ball rolling, we need somebody with some instant pull. Um, hopefully that comes down the line. But again, it's easier said than done. And, and certainly everybody in the series has uh, the best interest of open wheel racing at heart. Um, we'll see what comes of it. Yeah, I was, I mean, that's a lot of great points there. I, I, you talk about the common chassis. It's similar to, you know, what uh, NASCAR is doing with their Ilmore 358 engine, which was in ARCA and all that. And there, there's things they're trying to do, but the financials and all that they've hidden. Um, I'm just curious. It was something you brought up. You're talking about return on investment. You brought up ARCA. I mean, I know Indy Lights, it's very, very uh, small fields, but like what kind of budgets are we looking at in terms of Indy Lights to go and run what Dalton Kellett was doing or McGinnis or some of these people that were just out there relative to the Renus VKs of the world? relative to an Oliver Askew, these guys that were getting the the, the RTI uh, bonuses to run. Um, how much is it to, to go and run a full season? Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up the, uh, the bonuses for winning championships and uh, to move up through the uh, road to Indy ladder. Uh, Indy Lights, you know, put put some cost-saving measures into place. They announced those in, in mid-2018, but um, you look at the hard numbers that they've provided us in years past. Uh, back in 2019, or I'm sorry, 2018, the cost of just an Indy Lights singular chassis uh, was over $200,000, actually around $230,000, 
was the number that we received from the Road to India themselves. Uh, they cut that price tag to just about dead on 200,000. Um, but at the same time, you know, a, a scholarship from winning USF 2000, um, you know, that's, you know, between 200, $300,000, if I remember correctly, to move up to Indy Pro 2000. And then I think that uh, is increased um, to around 400,000 if you move up to Indy Lights, don't quote me on those numbers exactly, but if I remember right, that was the ballpark number. So you look at that, and obviously the purchase of a chassis is a one-time expense for a team owner, um, but you know the unfortunate reality of open-wheel racing in, in America is pretty much everybody not named Andretti, Ganassi, or Penske runs nearly on a shoestring budget uh, where... You know, if you have to write off a car after an accident, that's going to severely hamper your efforts um, and, and, you know, the way that you plan for the rest of the season. Um, we've seen, you know, for example, Dale Coin Racing is, has essentially leased out their extra car, their extra tub um, in recent years for extra Indy 500 entries. And if there comes a day where that tub uh, is severely damaged to where it has to be written off, I think that would be the end of, of coins um, partnerships with um, groups that, that you know bring in sponsorship money, but obviously coin um, offers up you know some uh, technical hardware, the tub itself, uh, some crew members. Um, you know they're, they're just one accident away from uh, severely altering their plans as they know it. And the same thing applies to, to Indy Lights. And that's before you even get into uh, the cost of tires, the cost of engine leases. Even uh, an engine lease in Indy Lights is $90,000 per year. Um, so you look at it on, on a relative scale, and of course, it's much less than what you would pay for as an IndyCar program. Uh, but if you put all those numbers together, I mean, that's, that's multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to run one car uh, in Indy Lights on, on an annual basis, um, you know, you've got other things you have to account for, like an electronics package from Cosworth, dampers, even exhaust headers and, and batteries. These things add up. And so if you came to a company and said uh, you wanted between uh, $500,000 and $750,000 to go run either Indy Lights or ARCA, I think it's pretty easy to see why uh, a company would pick ARCA at this time. I mean, at least they have some races shown on national cable television, uh, like Fox Sports 1 uh, carries ARCA races from time to time. We haven't seen an Indy Lights race uh, shown on, on cable television uh, that I can recall. Perhaps the Freedom 100 was thrown up there at some point when NBCSN uh, was only relying on Carb Day for their Indy 500 coverage before they got the full slate of IndyCar races, but at the end of the day, um, there's not much incentive for, for sponsors to jump on the Indy Lights uh, bandwagon or the road to Indy. Um, hopefully the Penske regime can help uh, the Anderson Promotions Group out and, and get a little bit more exposure for uh, our road to Indy programs, but uh, it's a tough road to hoe right now. Yeah, I mean, that's there, I mean, it's definitely you talking about cost of racing. I mean, cost of racing 
goes long before we were alive uh, for all of us. Uh, relative ages, me being the oldest guy, I think, of the bunch here. Uh, but, you know, that's been an issue going all the way back. Uh, Josh, I, I, my thoughts, uh, I, I would say it's like in terms of the advancement and we're talking about guys that advance through road to Indy, the Indy light series. What does this mean in terms? I mean, it's less about 2020. What, what do you think we're going to see in 2021 uh, in terms of Indy lights or will Indy lights be there? What, what are you thinking that we will have uh, come 2021 for, uh, the feeder series since we talk about NASCAR a lot here too. Well, it would be interesting to see what happens once they get beyond this year and what they decide to do for next year. Uh, we'll have to figure out and see, wait and see how how they uh, make the decisions for the series going next year. But um, if, if it returns as is, hopefully we'll continue to see teams uh, foster talent through the USF 2000 Indy Lights and and all all the feeder series in IndyCar, but I I wonder um, you know who can who can they bring in uh, to to drive their cars and I I know that there are drivers that are up and coming, um, but you know the thing is is we have the like like you said the the return on investment for the series and. I wonder how many drivers uh, have to bring in money in order to, you know, get rides to to be in the series. Um, that's something something to consider there. Uh, yeah, I mean, when we when you talk about all these feeder series, it goes. You think about Xfinity trucks. You think about ARCA, but then you go into Indy Lights. You go into F2, F3. You talk about Moto2, Moto3. Every form of racing the amount of money that it takes to get there it's getting into the daddy's money you know like mommy's money territory where it's less about talent and it's more about the paycheck uh and it's a sad commentary but it's existed forever um i think the indie lights series being put on hold for 2020 is a positive um, it's not. It's sad for the guys that were going to run this year, but I do believe that it's a net positive because it means that there's a better possibility of a decent field in 2021. Um, running a season and kind of having this hodgepodge of cars and having a random schedule and all that, I think is is better. It's better off that they did. Um, put it on hold. Uh, it, it's better for the overall sport. Um, we will uh, close out here uh, with Tanner uh, going and promoting uh, on his way out here because we're going to go and uh, separate this episode uh, here and we'll do the NASCAR stuff in a couple of days. But I'll uh, give the floor to Tanner here to talk about uh, his deals, not only the website, openwheels.com, but the Open Wheels 500. Uh, tell us about the Open Wheels 500. Give us more details on that and also on openwheels.com, uh, the website. 
Yeah, thanks for giving me uh, the space to talk about something that uh, we're, we're very proud of at Open Wheels. It's our 500-mile race that uh, we held for the first time back in November of 2019. Uh, it's a 500-mile event held on iRacing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And really for us, it's um, our way of, of providing what we can – call is the closest 500 mile race experience uh and, and bring that to sim racing and try to give the iRacing IndyCar community um something that they can be very proud of and, and excited to participate in and and something that gives them uh as close to the feelings the emotions the pressure and the excitement uh that competitors feel at the real life 500 each memorial day weekend we try to replicate that with the open wheels uh, 500 mile race and we hold it in November so that it's uh, normally six months in between each real life Indy 500. Obviously uh, COVID-19 has, has changed those plans a little bit. Um, but November gives us a great chance to um, provide a product that uh, features essentially two full weeks of activities. We have practice leading into uh, authentic two day qualifications um, the weekend before the race. So this year that'll be on November 7th and 8th. The uh, first day uh, decides the, the pole sitter for the event, just like used to back in the day at Indianapolis. And then on uh, Sunday, November 8th, uh, the field of 33 is set. Uh, we're going to have both days uh, broadcast live by Race Spot TV. Uh, they're the world's leading sim race broadcast company so we're excited to expand on our partnership with them that we had in 2019 and offer even more coverage uh in 2020 and then uh heading into race weekend that'll be november 13th 14th and 15th uh we actually have some support events similar to what we have uh, at the real life 500 in may that includes a 100 mile support race uh, that'll follow final practice, uh, as well as a pit stop competition, and perhaps even a legends race uh, in the Lotus 49 that were uh, in the oh, nice. introductory stages of planning. Yeah, that'll all be on Saturday, so the day directly before uh, the second Open Wheels 500. Uh, so Saturday will be Saturday, November the 14th. And then the second Open Wheels 500 will be on Sunday, November the 15th. So we're really excited. We're about to uh, unveil uh, later on this month our sponsorship options for the 2020 race. So we'll be uh, looking to grow our prize pool uh, for the drivers. Uh, we're very proud to offer a prize pool um, and, and a cash purse for our event uh, where we don't charge an entry fee for drivers. So I know a lot of events on iRacing have some great prize packages, uh, but they ask for drivers to submit an entry fee. Um, we're very proud that, that we can self-fund that and allow as many drivers as uh, are interested to participate in the race and attempt to qualify if they so choose. Uh, we had 104 drivers on last year's entry list. Uh, so that was very exciting to see, and we whittled that field down to 33, and some big names missed the show, uh, but such is the spirit of Indy, and uh, I think in our first year, it gave us uh, something that not only the community was extremely proud of, by the end of November, 
but something that caught a few eyes also in the IndyCar community. Uh, and we're hoping to build on the Open Wheels 500 in November and make it uh, bigger and better than, than the first year. So you can learn more by visiting uh, open-wheels.com slash OW500. Uh, and we'll be updating uh, news articles and, and relative topics relating to the Open Wheels 500 as the summer progresses. So you'll be able to find those stories and press releases on openwheels.com. Uh, and you'll also be able to find more information at all of our social media channels. You can find us on Twitter. Our uh, username is at open underscore wheels. And if you just search us on Facebook or Instagram, Open Wheels, uh, you should be able to find us and uh, stay in tune with what we're working on. Right. Uh, I mean, thank you, uh, Tanner, for uh, coming on. I know we probably went a lot longer than I think we intended to, but because we were going through so many different things and we're just riffing, we uh, were just having a conversation. I think that's part of what makes racing so fun and what makes our passion that we all have for this so meaningful that we just got in a conversation we bench raced and uh had some crap went on in between but you know it was great to discuss indycar and looking forward to the season opener here finally at texas motor speedway eddie goosage uh home there and uh a 200 lap uh indy 300 mile IndyCar race in prime time on NBC on made on actual NBC and uh, that'll be great on Saturday night uh give uh openwheels.com I'm I've uh, occasionally provided content there uh I don't know how great the quality was but I've actually provided content there um Tanner and has uh, allowed me to produce some writing and I've been eternally grateful for that. And he's uh, well-versed in uh, the IndyCar series and uh, hopefully give them a, a shout, give them a look in terms of their content. Uh, Tanner and Spencer Neff are, are uh, two of the best out there in terms of writers and the content they produce. And... Um, in terms of open wheel coverage, instead of going to the big dogs, go to the guys that are grinding and are truly doing it as a passion. Um, I'm I definitely fit in that category, but of course Tanner does. And talking about the open wheels 500 is is just yet another example of that. Um, thank you again uh, for your time, Tanner. Uh, I know that. Uh, you know, you're a busy man. You have a lot going on. You have a significant other. I don't have that, so it's not as big of a deal for me. But, um, uh, Josh, uh, before we uh, go, because we're going to end up coming back in a couple days, we'll uh, go and discuss the cup race. The Well, we have two cup races to discuss, and we have a Xfinity race to discuss. So, um what are your thoughts going out in terms of what we discussed today and what we're going to look for here on Wednesday night? Well, just to kind of uh, um, piggyback on the Open Wheels 500, I just wanted to know, is uh, there going to be like any um, 
barriers to entry, not uh, the cost, but like, um, is there going to be like a minimum level of experience? Uh, do you guys like have uh, a certain I rating or a certain safety rating that you guys uh, require for the entries? No, definitely good points. Good points for sure. Um, we in the past have had uh, the only requirement um, is that you have an Oval D 4.0 uh, license level. So that runs parallel to what uh, the license level requirement is for the iRacing Indianapolis 500. Uh, no requirements for uh, iRating or anything of that nature. So uh, I think our, our barriers for entry are really just the, the safety rating uh, and that license level, uh, which most people are able to, to get to that D4.0 relatively easily. Um, but we also can, can consider uh, body of work uh, as well uh, into that uh, uh, package if, if anybody didn't meet the, the 4.0 rating. I know one thing that we're going to consider uh, this year, uh, there's a lot of new uh, professionals on, on iRacing uh, that simply just don't run official races. So their safety rating and their license level won't be up. But obviously, uh, if anybody that runs IndyCar in real life wants to come run our race, we're going to uh, make an exception. So pro drivers will likely get a waiver on that requirement. But uh, for those of us that uh, enjoy sim racing and uh, get our fix through through iRacing, it's just that relatively simple uh, D4.0 license requirement. All right. Yeah, I I might enter. We'll see. I, I uh, currently have a um, I haven't renewed my iRacing membership in a while, but I'm working to get a new PC soon. So hopefully uh, I can get some experience and rack up some races and potentially enter. We'll see. No, we'd be happy to have you, man. It'd be awesome. Uh, enjoy getting all of our friends together for uh, something that's really meant to unite not only the uh, iRacing IndyCar community, but the motorsports community as a whole. Uh, and I give thanks to you, Josh, and, and you, Phil, uh, for giving me a platform to not only speak about my website, but uh, this race that, that I pour uh, countless hours into. Um, I'm working on our yearbook, actually, from the 2019 race. That'll be released in June. Uh, and I just finished up our day-by-day -day account of the 2019 race. And it was uh, nearly 70 pages worth of text and about 34,000 words of record-keeping that uh, we came up with. So we take it very seriously. And I thank you for uh, giving me the time to speak about that tonight. Uh, more than happy to come on and talk racing with you guys Anytime I can, it was uh, definitely a blast. So thank you. No, thank you, man. Uh, it's I, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me a couple of years back to be able to uh, cover the racing at Pocono. Hopefully, Mario Andretti's pull is enough to convince uh, the uh, – the family at Pocono Raceway, the Mattiolis, and uh, the everybody over there to go and bring IndyCar back, um, and maybe I'll be able to do that again. But, but even with that, also to for your time because you're busy, and for us, you know, in terms of what we're going through as a nation, um, you know, just being able to do this is just fun. And um, that's why we're doing this. That's why the GSP exists, so we can go and talk and we can bench race because 
racing is a passion. It's something that's driven my life since I was a child. And same for Josh, same for you. And, you know, hopefully I can get some cash together job-wise. I can maybe make something happen. I can finally, uh, you know, get get somewhere a semblance of stability and I could possibly get a sim. And, I, I mean, I've been kind of itching. You know, after everything kind of slowed down, I started looking. I'm like, man, I really want to get on iRacing. I really want to get on on our factor or set of Corsa because it's just so fun. It's so cool just to drive, you know, and, and the discords and, you know, that's the thing. I think just for the discord, just to go and joke around and BS with people, I think it would be worth it just as much as, you know, just the racing in general and racing on some of these legendary racetracks. So, um, uh, you know, I think that's all, I think that's a good, and uh, thank you again, Tanner. Uh, thanks again, Josh. Uh, we're going to be back on Wednesday uh, with the NASCAR-centric uh, uh, episode of uh, the Grip Strip podcast. We'll go over the two races that we didn't discuss, the second race at Charlotte, the Alsco 500K, and the Food City 500, the Supermarket Sweep 500. Um, at Bristol, and we'll also go over the Cheddar's 300 Xfinity race on uh, Wednesday night. If you're interested in tuning in, uh, let let us know on our social media channels. I'm at Philip G. Matthew on Twitter. Uh, I, uh, Josh, you're at you Sailor too, right? Yes. Uh, um, and uh, also on Facebook. So uh, that's. Uh, that's us. We'll be on on Wednesday. Tanner, uh, you have your handles you want to get out on uh, the way out here? Yeah, most of my IndyCar content uh, just goes through open wheels. So, again, it's uh, at open underscore wheels um, on, on Twitter. And then uh, on Facebook and Instagram, you can just search open dash wheels. Uh, should be able to find us on there. Uh, and then, uh, as far as personal stuff, it's a little bit more, uh, uh, basketball and, and fan stuff on, on my personal Twitter, but that's, uh, at Tanner J Watkins too, if anybody's interested in that. So thanks again, guys. It was a great time tonight. Yeah. And I, hopefully we can have you back on during the IndyCar season. I think we could probably book a, a meeting for this time in a month because there'll be the first, NASCAR IndyCar doubleheader at Indianapolis, hopefully, uh, which will see the IndyCars run the IndyCar Grand Prix and NASCAR on July the 4th actually running at Indianapolis, which is, I mean, I love Indianapolis, but they should be at Daytona, but that's beside the point. And we could go and discuss that and, uh, you know, and all the stuff that'll be going on between now and a month from now. Uh, with that, uh, for Tanner and for Josh, I'm Phil. Thank you for listening to the Grip Strip Podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday night. You have a good night, and uh, thank you for tuning in.